Well, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4 is where we have come in our study of God's Word, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. We like to teach verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the Bible so that you make sure that you are getting God's Word. You are not getting the Timothy Schmidt edit, but you are getting the Word of God in its fullness, not skipping over the difficult parts, not skipping over the parts that are hard to listen to, but God's Word unfiltered, and that is our goal. We want to hear from God. His words are true. His Word is powerful, and man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In Revelation chapter 4, we come to an amazing and awesome passage, a passage that is able to change our perspective, as much of the Bible is designed to do. We see too often with earthbound eyes, and we need to have a change in perspective to be able to see things from a heavenly perspective. I have here the first images that were shown from orbit of our planet. For perhaps 5,000 years or more, mankind had never risen above the clouds, never gotten outside of the earth's orbit to be able to see what this planet that we live on looks like from high above. But on August 14, 1959, Explorer 6 brought us this image. Everyone's perspective began to change. And over the coming years, in 1960, we had this image from Tiros 1, the first television image of Earth from space. As human perspective has changed in the last 60 years, as we've seen the Earth from outside of the Earth in a physical way, so Christians have had their perspective changed from the world around them ever since the Bible was written. Ever since God revealed himself in his throne room like he did in the throne view that he gave to Isaiah or to Ezekiel of his chariot-like throne with the wheels in Ezekiel chapter 1. And so in Revelation chapter 4, we get another one of those passages, a passage that lifts us up from the earth that we live on, that gravity binds us to, and are able to see the highest the holiest, to be able to enter into the very throne room of God through the eyes of faith. This is perhaps the most holy ground in all of Scripture. And so I'd like to take a moment for silence and prayer before reading our text this morning in Revelation chapter 4. Bow your heads with me. Father, There is no preacher and there is no congregation on earth sanctified enough, holy enough to be able to claim the right to enter into your holy presence. But what we cannot claim on our own, you have granted to us mercifully and graciously through the blood of Jesus Christ, your Son, so that our sins being washed our souls being purified, we are able in some measure to gain entrance and to grasp your heavenly throne room. 
pray that you would be with me and with each one who is gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to lift us up from our earthbound spiritual sense to a heavenly spiritual sense, to be able to set our minds on things above where Christ is, seated at your right hand. Help us to be able to understand these words, the import and the meaning, the reason for which you have given us this vision into heaven itself. For our good and for your glory, we pray humbly but confidently. Amen. Follow along in your Bibles as I read for us Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We come to a major transition in the book of Revelation. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, contained many callbacks to the beginning of the book. As we come to Revelation 4, the very throne room of God, We're going to begin this morning by talking about John's vision, these opening two verses, then looking at the throne room, which is most of the chapter, and then ending talking about the worship that takes place as recorded in the poetry of verse 8 and verse 11. Now, as we talk about John's vision, notice that it begins with this phrase, after this I looked. This is a callback to earlier in the book. Because in John's vision, he has taken a little detour from Revelation chapter 1 to describe in Revelation 2 and 3 the state of the churches. A wonderful thing for us that we've enjoyed these past few months looking into Christ's view currently of the church. But chapter 1 began with many of the ideas that are now picked up again in chapter 4. So it shows us that we are coming back to the main theme of the book. In fact, 
you could say Revelation chapter 4 is the anchor point of the whole book of Revelation. What is described in Revelation 4 is going to be referenced back again and again throughout the rest of the prophecies in the book. And it was something that was highlighted in the opening chapter. Notice how chapter 4 verse 1, Jesus speaks to John and says, I will show you what must take place after this. Very similar, I think the same words there in chapter 1 verse 1 about Christ showing to us his servants what must soon take place. And then in chapter 1 verse 4, God is referenced as him who is and was and is to come as he is referenced in chapter 4 verse 8. We have a reference to the seven spirits before the throne, also described in chapter 4, verse 5. In chapter 1, verse 6, God is given glory as he is in chapters 4, verses 9 and 11. He is called the Almighty in chapter 1, verse 8, as he is in chapter 4, verse 8. And this transportation into the realm of the Spirit is described in chapter 1, verse 10, in that opening vision of the glory of Jesus Christ, then with chapter 4, verse 2, when John says, immediately I was in the Spirit. And the voice speaking to him like a trumpet is that voice from chapter 1, verse 10, that speaks to him in the opening verse of chapter 4. So you see, we are going back to reintroduce the main subject of the book after having looked at the seven letters. And this is going to then carry us through the rest of the prophecies of the book. Now, he says twice in chapter 4, verse 1, after this. You see it there, the first verse, chapter 1, the first words, after this I looked. And then you come down to the end of the verse, and it says, I will show you what must take place after this. What is the this? Some people think this is just simply a reference to the order of the vision. That after this just means, well, the next thing I saw after Christ appeared in chapter 1 and spoke to each of the seven churches was this. But I, I think there's more to it than that. This after this is a callback also to chapter 1. Remember chapter 1, verse 19. Turn back a page or two. And when we were going through Revelation 1 a couple of months ago, we highlighted that chapter 1, verse 19 is viewed by many, and I think rightly so, as the outline of the book, the key to the book. For in Revelation 1, 19, Jesus says, write, therefore, the things that you have seen. The things that you have seen, well, that's chapter 1. That's the vision of Christ of what he's already just seen, and he's supposed to write that. And then he says, back in verse 19, those that are. Well, those that are references I think, the present, the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. Those are the things that are. We are in the time of the church, and we're still in the time of the church. And then, notice verse 19, the third thing he's supposed to write, those that are to take place after this, after this, after the time that we are in now, the future, the day of the Lord, the consummation, the pouring out of God's wrath, the establishing of God's kingdom, everything that the New Testament looks forward to at the end of this age, that is the reference there after these things. And this is, I think, what is in mind when Jesus says, come up here, I will show you what must take place after this. That situates us in the book of Revelation chapter 4, in the future, that John in the current 
in the moment that he was in, in his time, was caught up into heaven. And as he goes in vision, he is seeing what is going to take place after. And as we read through Revelation 4 and get into chapter 5, you find out that while the throne of God has stayed very similar, the throne room of God has stayed very similar throughout history, the descriptions here are very much like Isaiah saw 700 years before Christ. They're very much like what Ezekiel saw during his time in exile. And while much of it is the same, there are things that are different. And that's because this is yet future. So the throne room of God looks a lot like this today. But strictly speaking, Revelation 4 and 5 is a picture of the throne room of God right at the beginning of the day of the Lord, the time of God's judgment and wrath that is unveiled in this book as Jesus Christ will open the seals to show the judgments of God upon his enemies. So that's Revelation 4, connecting back to Revelation 1 and giving us the time period in which these things are taking place. Now, another thing I want to notice here in the introduction, in the opening verses, is that phrase that we already spoke about in verse 2, where John says, I came to be in the Spirit. Immediately, at once, I was in the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, once again, the Old Testament is the background for understanding the New Testament. And this is the same language that Ezekiel used about his visions when he was transported to see things in another time, in another place, things that you wouldn't normally be able to see, but that God was able to show him in a vision. So this is language that is describing a kind of visionary trance where you either see something that is far away in time and space, or you see something that is not actually a physical thing that can be physically seen, but it's a spiritual thing that is represented by some physical vision, some sight that you see in a vision. And that's what we have here. This is a vision of the throne room of God. It's not something that you're supposed to draw out and make a painting of, because it's not representing physical things, it's representing spiritual things. And what is a spiritual thing? Well, a spiritual thing is something like love. A spiritual thing is personality. A spiritual thing is consciousness. These are not physical things. You can't draw a picture of consciousness. You can't draw a picture of love. You can draw an act of love, but love itself is not a physical thing. It doesn't reflect light. It doesn't absorb light. You can't touch it. That's, that's a spiritual thing. And so many people in the world are skeptics. They make fun of spiritual things. They think the physical world is all there is or all there was or all there ever will be. But they can't explain consciousness. They can't explain love. They can't explain morality because their worldview doesn't allow for it. But we, who are just normal human beings, who haven't thought ourselves out of our senses recognize that there is such a thing as spiritual world. There is ethics. There is such a thing as truth. There is such a thing as love. There is such a thing as personality and consciousness. And these are not mere illusions, but they are real. In fact, they are more real than the physical world, for God is love, and God is spirit, and God is personality, and God is righteousness. And he has always been, and he always will be, and everything that is physical comes from him, and everything that is spiritual, like you, 
who does have a personality and does know how to love and does have a sense of right and wrong, you also come from him. And so the spiritual world is real. The spiritual world is there. In the spiritual world, we live in just as much as we live in the physical world. You are in the spiritual world right now because you're conscious, because you love, because you have an idea of God. This is all part of that invisible, spiritual, non-physical world. We dwell in the physical world. We dwell in the spiritual world. And in the spiritual world, so to speak, there is a place, so to speak. Don't think of it as a physical place. We're talking about the world of personality, the world of ideas, the non-physical, non-corporeal world. There is a place where God manifests his glory more than any other spiritual place in the universe. Now, I'm a spiritual place. You're a spiritual place. You're a center of consciousness. And we interact with one another. Well, God, he manifests himself most potently in a spiritual place that we call heaven. But heaven is not a reference to the sky, the physical sky. The physical heavens are a picture, a portrait of the spiritual heavens. The physical heavens are the part of the physical creation that are designed by God to raise up our thoughts, to make us think about how small we are, how great the universe is, how high and exalted God is, and how we are earthbound and are not able to get there. It's full of lights and glory that are a picture, a representation of the glory of God in his perfections, in his attributes, in his character, in his personality and nature. When we talk about heaven, we're talking about a spiritual place. The physical heavens are just a picture, a representation of that, very similar to how our physical bodies are an image of God. God said, let us create man in our image and our likeness. And when God appears in a vision in Ezekiel or in Isaiah, he has the form of a man. Not because we have created him in our likeness, but because he has created us in his likeness. And so as the physical human nature represents God iconically ruling on the earth, so the physical sky both the clouds in the sky and then the stars up above that going out into the farthest reaches of the galaxies and the galaxies, all of that represents the exalted majesty of God's character where he displays his perfections, his power, his glory. Hopefully that helps you to know how to read and interpret a chapter like Revelation 4 or Ezekiel chapter 1. I don't think anybody has fully explained it well enough to my satisfaction. I don't think I can explain it to my own satisfaction. But that's my best attempt at explaining what a vision is and what it means to be able to see into the throne room of God. So let's go and look at some of the details. Now, I was going to throw this verse up here, and it uh, mentions that Paul had a similar experience. When Paul says, I know a man in Christ in 2 Corinthians 12, it's a humble way of referring to himself. He was caught up to the third heaven. 
Kind of like John here, as Jesus says, come up here, I will show you. So Paul also was caught up and he saw things that can't be seen, that no human being can describe. And so 2 Corinthians 12 is a great chapter for understanding visions and how they work because even a man who experienced it didn't know whether he was in the body or out of the body. Is heaven a place where your physical body can go to? Maybe. Paul thought it could have been in the body that I was caught up into the third heaven, or maybe it was out of the body. Maybe it was just in my spirit, in my mind. I don't know. And so if the guy who experienced it didn't know, then, then I really don't know. I've never experienced it. So it just shows you the, the wonderful, mysterious nature of this. Like Jesus Christ, he's still in a body. Where is that body? Is it in this physical universe? Is it in another dimension? What does that even mean? I don't know. There is some mystery involved here. I'll be the first to admit that. But let's take a look then at the details of the vision of God's throne room, all right? So starting at the end of the second verse and coming down through the eighth verse, we have a description in a reverse order from what we had in our scripture reading. In Ezekiel, he starts with what is surrounding the throne, and he spends a lot of time talking about the living creatures and the wheels that were this chariot throne of God that was darting through the sky, moving wherever God wanted to go. And then he built up at the end of his prophecy to the one who was on the throne. But in Revelation 4, we take the opposite track. We start with the one who is on the throne, and then we move out from there to all of the attendant circumstances. So we're going to begin in the throne room by looking at the throne itself. Although, as we will see, there's only so much that can be said about the throne because it is overwhelming in its glory and magnificence. When Ezekiel tried to describe the throne of God, he used this language. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. That's that's far removed from the Lord. He didn't say this is the Lord. He says this is the glory of the Lord. It's like the sun. You can't see the sun. What you see is the light that comes from the sun. So in the same way, you can't see the Lord but you can see the light that comes from the Lord. That's the glory of the Lord. But what Ezekiel saw was not the glory of the Lord. He saw the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So it's a further step removed. And then he wouldn't see the likeness. He saw the appearance. He described the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And so what you understand from this is that no one can utter these things. That Paul and John, as brilliant as they were when they were lifted up by the Holy Spirit to be able to write Scripture, they still felt their insufficiency to be able to describe what they had seen. And Paul didn't even attempt to describe what he had seen. But Ezekiel, he says, well, this is my best. Uh, this is the best I can do at describing the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Because we know from God's own word that no one can look on God's face and live. That the face of Jesus Christ, as appearing in chapter 1, as John wrote, was like the sun shining in full strength. And our scientists will tell you that you're not supposed to look at the sun when it is shining in its full strength because it will damage your eyes. It will blind you if you continually do that. And the light of Jesus Christ, the light of the glory of God, is even more powerful than the light of the sun. And so God told Moses, you can't look at my face. You'll die. I'll just let you see my back, which is a metaphorical way of saying the afterglow of God's glory. So when we come to the throne, John doesn't spend a lot of time trying to describe the person who's on the throne because he's indescribable. 
Now, he doesn't say that's the reason, but the rest of Scripture, I think, gives us warrant to be able to say that's the reason why he doesn't go into great detail about the one who is on the throne. Let's take a look at what he does say. Back in chapter 4, verse 2, Behold, here's the invitation to our imagination. Even though it's indescribable, even though it goes far beyond words or anyone can imagine, yet we are still invited to try. And here the Holy Spirit is with us to help us in our weakness and says, Behold, a throne stood in heaven. Look up at the night sky, look at the starry galaxy, and and picture in your imagination those stars coming together to form a mighty throne. And coming together, all those galaxies, all those powers into one place and shining forth with such strength and such magnificence that it's, it's brighter than the sun shining in full strength. And you have some idea of the glory of the throne of God, the locus of his ruling authority. That's what a throne is. A throne is the location of rule. It's where the ruler sits. And when you think about the throne of God, the throne of God is not earthbound. The throne of God is in the heavens. And remember what I said. The physical sky is just a picture, a portrait of the spiritual heavens. The place of utter holiness. The place of complete righteousness. The place where power, innate power, eternal power, sufficient power, almighty power, where that place is in the mental world, in the spiritual world. That's the throne of God. And he takes his seat, and he's never left it. He's never abandoned it. He's never fallen asleep. He's never abdicated. Think about the throne in heaven. And have your perspective changed. God is God. And he is above all. As we look at the throne, he only mentions in passing the one who is seated on the throne. And the only description he has of him is that the appearance of him is like Jasper and Carnelian. That's all that we get about his appearance. Just as Ezekiel spent a whole chapter talking about the living beings and the wheels, but only spent a verse or two describing the one on the throne, that's the way it is here also in chapter 4. And the only thing that can be said about him is that he has a gem-like magnificence. Don't go online and try to figure out, you know, what does the jasper stone look like and what does the carnelian look like and, and all of that. Names of stones have changed and gotten confused and it's not important. What is important is that you picture in your mind the most glorious gem that can be pictured, and that is the best way that the Holy Spirit and John the prophet can describe to us the glory of God shining from the throne. It's the most glorious thing that he has created, and therefore it is the representation, it's the language that is used to describe the essence of God's own character. The brilliance of his perfections. The gem-like magnificence of God. John can give more details about what surrounds the throne, and that's what we get then in the rest of the chapter. Notice verse 3. After describing him 
as a jewel or a gem upon the throne, gleaming and shining, you see that further around the throne, there is this rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. This also has a counterpart in Ezekiel chapter 1. In Ezekiel 1.28, we are told that there's this bow around the throne then as well, like the cloud on the day of rain, so is the appearance of the brightness all around the throne. And so here you've got the same radiance, the same emerald rainbow glow around the throne, brilliant and translucent. And then I also want to focus on the peals of thunder. Notice in verse 5, from the throne, again, this is the attendant circumstances, from the throne come Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. This is often the case, I'd say probably always the case, with theophanies. That there's rumblings, there's earthquake, there is thunder, there is just these awesome sounds and feelings of power. If you've experienced an earthquake, then you know what it's like to have that which you normally think of as immovable suddenly moving. And the power to move the whole ground and earth underneath you and to shake it, it is an unfathomable power. Scientists have looked into trying to calculate how much gigatons or whatever of energy is involved in these earthquakes. Well, God, when he appears, there is this lightning and thunder and earthquake. If you've been outside when the thunderstorm is rolling in and yet you feel the thunder when it's close, when it's like right outside your window or nearby and it just shakes you to your core, that is what it's like to be in a vision seeing the throne of God. This is the way it was for the people of Israel in the Old Testament when God came to them in Exodus 19. The very first of the theophanies among the fallen mankind, among the people of Israel, aside from his appearance to Moses, was when God brought the people together around Mount Sinai and he came down and his glory was revealed to all of the people and he came in a dark cloud with thick smoke and there was lightning coming forth from it and thunders and earthquakes and and the people were terrified, as it says there in Exodus 19, verse 16. This is all to show us a glimpse, a, a, a little taste as far as our puny imaginations are able to carry us, to to be able to understand the awesome power of God. More on that next week. Next week we're going to do the application. I'm tempted to get into the application, but no, save it. Next week is the application. But let's look at chapter 4, verse 4 then, and notice the next thing around the throne. And this is what is unique to John's vision, is the 24 elders around the throne. Ezekiel didn't mention 24 elders. Isaiah didn't mention 24 elders. But in chapter 4, verse 4, John describes around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Who are these elders? They show up again and again throughout the book, in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, even in chapter 19, verse 4, but nowhere are they explicitly identified. This is the most description we get of these 24 thrones and the 24 elders sitting around. And so there's basically two different views on this question of who are the 24 elders. Well, they could be angels because this is a heavenly scene. 
God describes in the Old Testament a council, a heavenly council that is in his heavenly throne room, and this could be a description of that heavenly council. And in fact, angels are referred to as thrones in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. However, there's good reasons to think that this is not talking about angels, but that this is talking about redeemed people. One of my favorite reasons for this view, and this is the view that I take, is that elders, this word, is only used of human beings in the New Testament. And even in the Old Testament, there's only one passage that could maybe be referring to angels, but maybe it's not referring to angels, Isaiah chapter 23. But here the word elders really seems to be, if you're reading it in the New Testament context, a reference to people. In fact, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, refers to himself as an elder. This is how he identifies himself in 2 John and 3 John in the opening verses of each of those letters. And also, the white garments that are described have just been promised to the overcomers in chapters 2 and 3. The crowns that they wear have just been promised to the overcomers in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And so, while angels would be fitting in a heavenly throne room scene like this, the context and the words that John uses lead me to believe that these 24 elders are the redeemed. Now, whether they are the redeemed of Israel, whether they are the redeemed of the church, 12 from Israel, 12 from the church, we don't know. And you can speculate on that all you like, but just make sure that you keep your speculations as speculations and you, you don't start building your theology on speculation. All right? So that's the 24 elders. God puts little puzzles like this into Scripture, and it's a test for us. Are we going to do our homework? If we do do our homework, are we going to be proud about our homework? And if we become proud about our homework, are we going to start making all kinds of applications that are dependent upon our view so that we look like we're important? Do your homework, but be humble about it, and don't be making it the main point. That's, I think, a test here for us with passages like this to find out our character. Do we value the Word of God? Are we using the Word of God to promote ourselves? I think it's redeemed men, but other people believe it's angels. We'll know for sure when we get a chance to ask the Lord. All right, so let's keep going. The seven spirits of God come next in verse 5. You see the peals and the thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. I think that's a good translation, which are the seven spirits of God. And this harkens back to Revelation 1, as we already pointed out. And Revelation 1 harkens back to Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10. And this is the verse I showed you when we were in Revelation 1, that Zechariah talks about these seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. So don't think that the Holy Spirit is seven different beings. He's one being, but he's described in a sevenfold perfection as these seven spirits, these seven torches before the throne of God a very strange but very interesting description of the Holy Spirit. All right, and then we have the expanse. Back in the text, you see verse 6, Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So you've got the throne, you've got the one seated on the throne, you've got the 24 thrones around it, you've got the seven firing, fiery torches of the Holy Spirit, you've got then the sea of glass. And all the while, the lightning and the thunder and the earthquake. What an awesome scene. Hard to keep all of it in your mind and to fully appreciate the power of what is here. 
what is this sea of glass and why is it there? Well, I really don't know what the sea of glass is supposed to represent, but we find it throughout these kinds of passages. Back in Ezekiel, there was the sea of glass. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out over their heads. And then also, back in Exodus chapter 24, when the people of Israel, the elders of Israel, and another reason to think that elders is a reference to the redeemed, because here you've got elders eating and drinking with God, and as they do, they saw the glory of the God of Israel. And they got to participate in this theophany on the mountain, the holy mountain in Exodus 24. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. This seems to separate him. This seems to elevate him from all that is created. It seems to provide just another element of splendor to the already overwhelmingly splendorous throne room scene. In Exodus, Ezekiel, Revelation, we find this sea of glass, this pavement, this expanse before or under the throne. And then finally, we come to the four living creatures. And these also were described in the prophecy of Ezekiel in our scripture reading, although there's slight differences. There's little differences between the way John describes them and the way that Ezekiel describes them. And this is to help us remember that this is a vision. Angels don't literally have physical wings. They're not physical beings. The wings are representative. The wings are a symbol of their ability to move, of their humility and desire to cover themselves in the presence of God. So whether you say there's four wings or whether you say there's six wings, it's not the point. The point is that they move and that they cover themselves with their wings. Uh, These are spiritual beings, not physical beings. This is a vision. This is seeing what can't be seen. This is seeing something that is not part of our visible light spectrum, okay? And And they are not physical beings. So when it says they're covered with eyes, you don't want to draw a picture of an angel covered with eyes. That's not the point. The point is that they are alert. The point is that they are filled with knowledge, The point is that nothing escapes their notice. You know, when mom says, I got eyes in the back of my head, I see what you're doing, she's telling you, she's alert. Nothing is escaping her notice. And these angels, they don't just have eyes on the back of their head, they got eyes everywhere. They see everything. Nothing escapes their notice. Ever vigilant, ever watchful. In fact, in some Hebrew text, angels are called the watchers. Here's the watchful covering cherubs around God's throne. And they're called cherubs, cherubim, in the book of Ezekiel. They're identified as such. We don't really know what the word cherub or cherubim means. The history of it, the origin of it is uncertain. But both in Ezekiel and in Revelation, they are referred to as living beings. They're not animals, but they are living creatures. They're not human, but they have an intelligence that is similar to humanity. And in their faces, they have four faces each in Ezekiel. They have one face each in Revelation. Again, a difference. It's a vision. Don't draw a picture of four faces. That's not the point. The point is that whatever is noblest, whatever is strongest, whatever is wisest, and whatever is most swift in our physical world, that's what these spiritual beings have in their nature. 
They are the noblest, strongest, wisest, and swiftest creatures that God could create to guard the glory of his throne room. They are probably the same as the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6. Seraphim, we do have a pretty good idea of the meaning of that word, burning ones, as they are burning with holy fire uh, in the presence of God. Not burning like suffering burning, but just, you know, burning in the sense of being powerful heavenly creatures. All right, so that's what we see in the throne room of God. The throne itself, the gem-like excellence of the one who sits upon the throne, the glorious rainbow around the throne, the sea of glass before the throne, 24 thrones most likely representing the redeemed from humanity, around it with the four living creatures right next to the throne itself, and the thunder and the lightning and the flashes. And why does God give this glimpse into the glory of his heavenly throne? It's so that we might worship him. And that's where all of this is leading. We're going to really focus on this next week, but just at the end of the message today, take a look at verse 8 and verse 11. You see in verse 8, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So the overwhelming glory and splendor of the scene is now added to with this voice of praise focusing on the attributes of God, particularly his holiness, his power, and his eternality. His holiness, his power, and his eternality are the three attributes focused on in that angelic worship in the throne room. Then it's picked up by the 24 elders. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks, notice the glory and honor and thanks, to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, him who is seated on the throne, John's going to keep coming back to that. Ten times in the rest of the book, he comes back to talking about him who is seated on the throne. Him who lives forever and ever, again, a focus on his eternality. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. All creation owes worship, honor, thanksgiving, All the power that we have, we subject it to him as the one who has given us power. The one who is the source of power. The one who is power himself. We give him the honor. We give him the thanks. We give him the glory as is right. For we are his creation and he is our source. Worship. We're going to be talking a lot about worship next week. We'll take... The truth of this passage, the truth of God's holiness, the truth of God's eternality, the truth of God's sovereignty, and we'll see how this changes our perspective when we believe it, when we understand it. It transforms our worldview and makes us into genuine worshipers. And genuine worship is something that God is seeking. Why is he seeking it? I'll tell you next week. But we end where we started. 
even more revolutionary than seeing the earth from orbit is seeing the earth from God's heavenly throne room. And this is something that has been available to mankind by God's grace for thousands of years. We didn't have to wait until 1959 to get a view of the earth from God's heavenly throne room. And we have it. And so if you have eyes to see God on the throne, God is on the throne, do you know what that means? Do you see it? Do you understand it? Does it impact your heart the way that it should? Then you will live without fear. You will live without anxiety. You will live with trust and confidence in God if you can see him on his throne. But if you can't see him on his throne, you got a lot to worry about. For the wild waves of the sea are always going, always threatening, always demanding our attention. But if you can lift your eyes to the heavenly place of God's throne, those waves of the sea are nothing. They don't disturb you, and you can walk on water. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we praise you because you have created us. We did not create ourselves. We do not belong to ourselves. We do not exist unto ourselves, but we exist for you, as all things do. From the stars burning in the Andromeda to the sea slug on the bottom of the ocean floor, all things declare the praise and glory of their maker. And we thank you for making us the rational part, the spiritual part, the moral part of your creation so that we can worship you rationally, spiritually, and morally. And we do that imperfectly, but we want to do it more and more so that you can have the honor and the glory that is rightly yours and we can fulfill the purpose for which we were created. We pray it for our good and for your glory. Amen.